Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Shahir, welcome to the Boney Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Are you in the camps right now? I am in Dhaka. Um, okay. So I, I came to Dhaka on Saturday. Um, it's still in lockdown here in Bangladesh. Uh, the lockdown is supposed to lift on May 16th. Um, and so they chose May 16th so that people would not travel into district for Eid. But of course, that, of course that's happening. Um, you see these pictures of you know, the crowded ferries. Everybody's trying to get home. Last last Eid uh, was also under last two Eids were also under lockdown. Anyway, I took uh, I took a vehicle to Chittagong and then I flew from Chittagong. Um, so I'll be here for a couple of days and then I'm actually going to. I'm actually supposed to go to Greece for about a week. Um, this is opening up and I'm going to meet a couple of friends there. So I'm really excited about that. It's awesome. So we first spoke when we you were on a panel uh, to just to talk about what's going on in the Rohingya with the Rohingya and and the camps. Uh, talk, can you talk about how you got involved um, with with the with the Rohingya? It was an unexpected an unexpected turn in my life. Um, so at that time, I was I was working as a journalist. I was a freelance journalist. Um, and I was doing a lot of reporting for, for Vice. Um, and I happened to be in Bangladesh just for a couple of months. I was visiting, I was visiting my, my parents. My family lives, my parents live in Dhaka. And um, I was visiting them for Eid. The influx happened all of a sudden in August 2017. And we started to see a lot of news stories. And my dad just said, why don't you, why don't you go down to Cox's Bazaar and you know, see what's going on? It seems like this is... Um, a very significant event and, um, and you should probably go report on it since you're right here in Bangladesh. So, so that's what I did. And I had, you know, never done any conflict reporting. Um, I had been reporting on refugees in the U.S. Um, but, you know, that was a very, very different context, you know, refugee resettlements and the problems that, you know, they face. And, and integrating um, into U.S. society, but uh, nothing, nothing that would have prepared me for for what I saw in Fox's Bazaar. Um, and uh, based on the reporting that I did there, and some of the some of the people that that I met, um, I was offered, I was asked to just to take a position as a comms officer for a couple of months, and then that two months turned into four months, turned into six months. Um, I left that gig. I was recruited by by BRAC um, to lead their their comms team for the humanitarian response program. And now it is more than three and a half years later. Um, it's almost four years since I since I first uh, arrived in Cox's Bazaar, and I, I call myself an accidental humanitarian. It definitely wasn't a, a planned career move, um, but uh, I find myself very very invested, and I would say that. I'm one of the few people working in Cox's Bazaar that has been here, been been working in that response for, for as long as I have, for as long as I have. So, you know, this kind of institutional memory, you know, that, that I'm bringing. And the other thing is that I'm also one of the few people that is 
um, that kind of straddles this world of international aid worker, um, you know, with the, the sensibility that um, that the you know that international sensibility um, and uh, you know somebody who also you know has a foot in Bangladesh understands the language, understands the local context, and so I'm I'm, I'm a bridge between these two very different but um, important groups of, of aid workers. And I think being that bridge puts me in a unique position because there's so few of us. Um, and uh, the, you know, the aid world, it's a very kind of hierarchical world, you know, where a lot of the decision-making and leadership is in the hands of um, uh, uh, international officers. Um, but, you know, most of the work, the frontline work especially, is being done by nationals and locals. Um, and so you have this, like, disconnect. Um, a disconnect and understanding of, of context, culture, and uh, and also of power. And it would be, it's, it's important to have people who, well, it's important for, you know, people who are locals or national staff to be to be elevated um, in power in power roles and decision making roles, um, because they are bringing you know that that knowledge of of the context um, and uh, a more a deeper sense of you know what's going to be sustainable in the long run. Um, because it's more likely that they'll stay, um, and it's also you know more likely that they they understand you know what it takes to. You know, create solutions that are you know sustainable in the local context that are durable. Um, whereas you know international, um, the internationals they often come in for a few months, maybe six months, maybe a year, um, but then you know they're gone. You know, and they have and you, know, you come in with your they come in as tech, as technical experts with um, you know a certain a certain um, professional background, but it's not always you know uh, tailored you know contextualized to the needs of that certain time and place and group of people. So, you know, being somebody who is able to, that is pulling from both of those worlds and uh, is able to represent, uh, is able to represent both has actually been, I think, uh, a reason why there continues to be a, a role for me um, in Cox's Bazaar and, uh, you know, people want to work with me um, and why, you know, I find the work to be, um, well, you know, why, why I feel like I'm needed, I guess I would say. <laughs> Did you, um, before your, your dad asked you to go to Cox Bazaar, were you intimately familiar with what was going on there? I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was intimately familiar. Uh, I had lived in, I lived in Bangladesh for a couple of years before when I was working at the Asian University in Chittagong. So I was based in, I was based in Chittagong. I lived there for a couple of years. So I was there in 2012 when there was another, you know, large, large crisis and influx. And at that point, Bangladesh had closed the borders, was not allowing, um, was not allowing the, uh, the refugees to actually enter into Bangladesh. Mm. So, uh, it was in the news at that time. And that's when I first learned about the Rohingya refugees. Um, I hadn't gone to, to visit the camps. I had not personally met any Rohingya refugees at that time, but that was the first time that, um, I, I, I came to know that there is, there is this refugee crisis, you know, right on the Bangladesh, uh, Myanmar border, you know, the Bangladesh is, has been hosting, uh, a large population of, of, um, of Rohingya for a long time. Um, but, um, I wasn't that aware of the, of, of the contours, you know, the contours of the conflict, you know, what the roots of it were. 
um, and just how tra- intractable um, the conflict the conflict is. Um, so, uh, so I did have a little bit of awareness, um, and uh, I um, I knew of it as I knew of the Rohingya as being you know one of the most persecuted people, um, and uh, you know one of the largest groups of stateless people in the world. But it was it was only after um, I uh, I began reporting on the issue in 2017, and especially after um, I began to work with them, you know, spend time in the camps and, and interview people, get to understand uh, who they were. That um, that I developed that awareness, and I started to do my research. Now you were you were born in Seattle, so I, which is not a place. It's not a, a typical place uh, Bangladeshis immigrate to. How, how did that happen? And, and at what point did you leave Seattle? My father, you know, like many, like many of our parents, um, he he migrated to the U.S. Um, for uh, for higher education. Uh, so first mm. he landed. So first, I think he was in uh, California, and then um, in Cincinnati. He lived all around. He lived all around the states. He ended up in um, Seattle. Um, as a as a professor, so for for many mm. years he was a professor of economics, and uh, I left. So I was born in Seattle, but we um, we moved to a different part of Seattle, a more rural part, you know, okay. near Idaho, which has a very different character. Wow. Uh, when I was yeah, when I was when I was quite young, um, I might have been two or three. Uh, I don't remember. And then I lived in Washington State until I was eleven years old, and that's when we came back to Bangladesh. My father okay. took sabbatical. Yeah, my father's okay. radical, right? Um, but I realized that you know my family is very unusual in the sense that we we returned to Bangladesh. You know, there is that reverse migration. Um, my father did it when um, when when we were when I was when I was young. Um, so he brought uh, he brought us five kids. Um, my oldest brother at that time, who was uh, he had just started undergrad, so he came during the summer and then he went back. Um, to begin, I think his sophomore year at, um, and at MIT, but, but my, but me and my other brother and my two younger sisters, um, we then, uh, we settled in Dhaka and, uh, we lived, we lived and we went to school in Dhaka until we graduated high school. So and when I left, bit, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. So this was, that was in 1991. Um, mm. And uh, when I left in 1998 to go to college uh, in New York City, um, I thought I was never going to come back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I ended up coming back. Uh, My younger sister, one of my younger sisters, also ended up coming back to live and to work, and she's still here. My oldest brother, um, uh, after graduating from from MIT and then doing a lot of... um, um, doing his his master's and then a PhD in Cambridge. He ended up coming back to Bangladesh as well um, to work. And he's he continues to, to work in Bangladesh as an academic. Um, and it's it's very rare that that I meet other people like that. Um, and uh, you know it's in my family I think it's, it's especially unusual because there are four of us. So there's my father, well and of course my mother. Um, and then, and then three out of five of the, of the children who come back to Bangladesh to work. Um, I, I don't think people usually see that as an option. Um, just feels like, why would I do that? You know, why did your dad um, do that? Why did he do that? Um, initially he, 
Well, it was, you know, the call of the mother country um, okay. and wanting to, wanting his children to come back to Bangladesh and have a sense of what it means to be Bangladeshi, you know, a sense of Bangladeshi culture, Bangladeshi values. Okay. Um, and initially it was only supposed to be for a year. So we took a sabbatical. We were here for a year. But then he found what became his life's work. Um, so he began, he uh, became engaged with a NGO called the Hunger Project. Um, and he has been the country director um, of uh, the Hunger Project for almost 40 years now. Um, wow. And yeah, yeah. So the Hunger Project is an organization that is, uh, they try, they work to create a, an end to, to poverty um, and, uh, and hunger through creating self-reliance. Um, and uh, his work has changed over the years um, to include a, uh, a political aspect to it. Um, so one of the things that he talks about a lot is the need to create an environment that's pro-poor. So, you know, if you don't have policies, if you don't have an environment that, uh, that allows for poor people to have, you know, economic and professional opportunities, then, you know, no matter how many self-reliance programs you do, or no, no matter you know, how many interventions um, at, at the village level, you don't create sustainable futures. And so, uh, so um, he uh, began to work in the political space, you know, to create, uh, to create reform, electoral reform, you know, get money out of politics, um, you know, became an anti-corruption activist. Um, and it's all about, you know, changing, um, you know, changing the environment so that people have better opportunities. Um, and he's become a warrior for that. You know, I said that my dad is he's a social justice, economic justice warrior. And, um, and that's really you know, inspired his children. Um, so, uh, so I didn't plan to come to Bangladesh. I wouldn't say that, you know, my brother or my sister who have returned, that that was ever in their life plan. But, um, you know, so a couple of things. You know, one is that, um, uh, and I do see this in, in a lot of, you know, Bangladeshi Americans, you know, there is, there is a passion for, um, a passion to fight injustice, um, you know, whether that's in the U.S. Um, or um, or coming back here, you know, I think you see that in you know, in the rise of like so many, um, you know, Bangladeshi Americans going into going into politics, you know, going for, um, you know, uh, running for running for election in the past couple of years, um, and um, and you know, there's there's a lot of activism, you know, led by Bengali Americans, um, and uh, that true that too you know runs true in my family you know except that um you know the context is is bangladesh um you know in, instead of the u.s um so you know coming back here you know i found myself like um engaged in and being given opportunities um to 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 work on problems um that um, i feel really passionate about um, and, you know, the opportunities part is, is, is interesting. And, and I think it's key because, um, because so many, you know, people with my training, um, don't come back to Bangladesh, you know, um, you know, somebody see my seat, so someone sees my CV and, you know, that they see that I have, um, you know, I went to Columbia as an undergrad and I have a graduate degree in Columbia, from Columbia as well. And it's like, wow. Okay. Um, what are you doing here? You know, let's, 
let's hire you, you know, just because I, just because I have these credentials, um, because so many people, uh, you know, so many really talented young Bangladeshi or Bangladeshi American people, um, or, you know, Bangladeshi, you know, British people or, or, you know, from whatever place in the diaspora, they're not really interested, you know, in working here. And so you have that, you have that brain drain from Bangladesh where, you know, people who, um, uh, have studied to a high level and are very qualified um, in Bangladesh or you know studied abroad, they they don't want to be working here. Um, and so uh, so there is there is there there's a need there's there's a hunger. Um, and I find myself you know having been given um, really interesting opportunities here that I don't think I would have gotten quite so readily um, in the U.S. Um, you know, for example, uh, I spoke about working at the Asian Asian University for Women. Um, that is a very, very special university. It's, it is uh, either the first or one of the first liberal arts universities in Bangladesh. Um, and it brings women, talented young women from countries across Asia um, for a, a very a rigorous liberal arts education. Um, and uh, so I, I began working there in, in 2009, and I hadn't done much teaching before at that time. Um, I had taught, uh, I taught at North South University for a semester. Um, and, uh, you know, they were looking for, for people to run the writing program that, uh, to work in and to run the undergraduate writing program. Um, you know, as, as a liberal arts university, writing is the, writing is, is very foundational, you know, to, to your success, not only as a student, but, you know, the skills that you develop um, in those writing in those writing courses, uh, evidence-based thinking, you know, critical thinking, as well as just the pure you know, writing skills. Um, you know, we see them as, as being you know very foundational to um, being able to you know think and argue um, with uh, clarity and persuasion. Um, so, you know, setting up that writing program was uh, was you know was really seen as um, a fundamental you know component. To creating a successful uh, curriculum for the students, um, and uh, I had a conversation um, with uh, with the VC, and um, I think she was a provost at the time, um, and that you know led very quickly to her offering me a position as a as a lecturer, um, and and then later, uh, and a year after that, it became a assistant professor. So that was very very quick, um, and I. You know, that wouldn't have happened in New York City, um, where I had been living previously. And, you know, where most, uh, most people who teach first or second year writing programs are adjuncts, you know, um, the academic landscape, you know, certainly has changed a lot, um, in the past you know, decade in the U.S., that, you know, shift into a shift toward hiring people as adjuncts, you know, with very little benefits. Um, you get paid like two or three thousand dollars per course. Um, and you know it's not really seen as as an attractive as an attractive option, but of course you know if you love writing, if you love to teach writing, um, if you're an academic, then you know it's worth it for a lot of other reasons. But um, but uh, you know I really the opportunity that I was given um, at uh, at the Asian University for Women was it was life changing and um, and. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have received that, you know, in the, in the U.S. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to work at such a, 
a magical, you know, place with such a, with such an interesting, um, such a talented, you know, group of, of faculty as well as students. I mean, those students, they came from everywhere, everywhere in Asia. We had Palestinian students. We had Tibetan students. We had a lot of Bangladeshi students, you know, some of whom have never really left their villages. Um, we had Indian students and, and Cambodian students and Nepali students and Bhutanese students. Eventually, we had a couple of Iran, Iranian students uh, that came all the way from Iran um, to live in Chittagong, you know, in dormitories with, with young women from across Asia. And it was really like this, you know, living laboratory um, in, uh, you know, coming to and being exposed to, to ideas, uh, to, to sensibilities um, from um, so many, you know, different cultures. Um, you know, so many different kinds of experiences with the faculty as well as through the students. Um, and yeah, you had like six girls like living in a, a, a dormitory room um, with, uh, you know, some of them would be Bangladeshi. Uh, you'd have a, a Chinese girl and a Nepali girl um, and a Sri Lankan girl that'd be from different faith backgrounds. And many of them had never met somebody from a different faith, from a different ethnicity, a different race. Some of them had never left um, their villages before. And here they are all thrown together. And their teachers are from you know, the U.S. or the U.K. or, or Australia or Bangladeshis, you know, who have studied abroad. And just like um, the world, you know, we're changing. We're, they were just being asked to, to question everything. Um, and to, yeah, to question everything, you know, interrogate, um, to think critically and to value their individual voices and life experiences in a way that, um, that they've never been, you know, uh, told was important before. Um, so, uh, I guess, you know, what I'm saying is, um, there are really cool things happening in Bangladesh and, um, and, uh, you know, as a Bangladeshi American, um, you tend to not be, you know, aware of, of, um, you know, all of the, all of the innovative projects and all of the opportunities, um, that, um, that are available to you. Um, and, um, so for me, AUW was one of them. And then, and now, um, in my role working in the Rohingya refugee response, um, and being that bridge, as I said, you know, between the international aid worker cohort there, um, and, uh, and the national, um, and the national aid workers there, it does kind of give me, it gives me an opportunity and a, and a voice, you know, a platform, um, that's, that feels, you know, really, important and it feels like the work that i'm doing is very important and you know also that my father one of the things that that you know my father said that i remember from my father saying in my childhood is you know you can be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond um and uh and here um i feel like i have an opportunity to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond um you know, uh, to put it in a fairly, um, blunt way. Um, and that has, yeah, definitely created a lot of career opportunities for me as well as growth opportunities. You probably also see the immediate impact of your work, right? That's one of the things that I feel like a lot of us 
um, in, in certain careers, I mean, you know, wh what we do, um, you don't really see the underlying impact. Um, that's a frustration for a lot of, I mean, certainly me and, you know, other people that work for, you know, companies, you know, companies in finance or, or whatnot. One thing that you said, you know, you're right. I haven't seen or spoken to anyone like your dad that's basically, you know, moved for, you know, basically what you said for the purpose of giving your, his children exposure to culture. I think most of the folks that I've spoken to that have moved back to Bangladesh was, was because of 9-11. Um, mm. I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of families do that because they were uh, concerned about how the reaction to nine eleven um, around that time. But do you remember when you were eleven years old? Was it culture shock for you when you went back? Such culture shock. Um, so that was in nineteen eighty one, and Dhaka was a very different place. Dhaka was a very very different place then. I actually um, left. I left Dhaka in ninety one, so it's it was the opposite for me. Oh, I didn't realize that that um, you were. So you were born here, and uh, how old were you when when you left? So I was about six and a half, six, yeah, six and a half. So we we, um, yeah, we left in ninety ninety one, and and then I went back. The first time I went back was two thousand and seven. So it was it was very different. Uh, even in in that that time period, Bangladesh had changed a lot. So I, I, you know, obviously I, I, I had little memories, but my, my dad was even just, it wasn't the country that he left. Um, yeah. it, it was so different. Yeah. I mean, so much more crowded and everything was just different. Um, but I, um, I'm, I'm, yeah. So what, tell us to me about what, you know, how, what, how you felt like, you know, obviously did, did people, did kids think you spoke funny because, cause I still go back and my bone is pretty good, but I still, you know, my cousins make fun of me cause I speak funny. Did, did you have any of that? Well, at that point, I could barely speak Bangla at all. You know, oh, really? Amar nam Shahira. Ami Bangla Bultipari. Ami Bangla Bultipari. It was really terrible. Um, and uh, actually, when we when we first arrived in Bangladesh, my parents sent me and my two brothers ahead of them. I was 11 at my 11th birthday in the Abu Dhabi airport. I remember that very vividly. My brother, uh, one of my brothers was 13 and the other brother was, was 18. So we were in Dhaka for a couple of days in Muhammadpur. And Muhammadpur at that point, you know, there was still like kukur and trees. It wasn't, mm. um, it was much more, you know, restful and, and yeah, yeah. Um, residential. Um, and then after a few days, maybe it was a week, we got sent to Kumila, you know, to the ancestral home uh, where there was no running water, um, mm. you know, no, no indoor toilets. No electricity. Yeah. And, and to cross, you know, to cross the, the stream into the village, there was like one of those bamboo pole bridges. Yeah. <laughs> um, haka, haka. What do you call them? We call them hakas. Yeah. Um, so I remember, you know, having to cross that and losing my shoes and just being, oh, wow. you know, so just so terrified and I couldn't communicate and I was a fairly like bookish little girl mm -hmm. um, and people would just stare at me. It wasn't just that, you know, they didn't understand me, but they would stare at me, you know, they'd come, they'd come and peer into, you know, the windows of the, of the house and just like stare at me and they would steal my stuff. And Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I got sick, of course, you know, I had diarrhea and I got scabies and, of course, and all yeah. kinds of things. So that was, uh, it was definitely a culture shock. Um, but we were only there for a couple of months. Um, and my brothers, of course, my brother, my brothers loved it. My older brother had already you know, spent significant time, um, in the village during the summer breaks, uh, when he was, 
um, you know, during his teenage years. My other brother, you know, he loved it because he could just like run around and, yeah. um, you know, everybody was fascinated with him and, yeah. and he had a lot of physical freedom in a way that I didn't. Um, um, and I mean, he sees a boy and I was a girl and that made a lot of difference. Um, uh, and that continued to be true when we, when we moved back to Dhaka. So, you know, of course we came back to Dhaka to start school. Uh, I was in a English medium like a British run English medium school for maybe a year. And then we started at the American international school, which is an American high school, mm-hmm. uh, American curriculum. Um, so, uh, so I did, uh, let's see, I guess from eighth grade, yeah, from like eighth grade until I graduated high school, mm-hmm. I was in the American international school, um, as well as my, my older brother, um, and then my two sisters, you know, they started at, at AISD when they were in elementary school and they went to this, the same school, basically. Um, uh, for all of their um, all of their lives before they started college, and um, well, there uh, this is so the students were a mix of you know the children of diplomats and um, uh, you know um, people whose parents worked at multinational comp- uh, corporations and and rich Bangladeshis, um, of which you know my family was not one. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Um, no, no, no. My uh, so there were my parents are you know professionals. Um, my dad was a professor. Yeah, he worked. He, excuse me. Uh, he worked for U.S. Aid here in Bangladesh for okay. a little bit. But but yeah, you know, for the past um, as I said, about forty years, um, he has been um, uh, running the running the hunger project. Um, so. You know, there there are lots of there are lots of subcultures. Uh, there are lots of subcultures also. You know, cliques, just as you would at any high school um, at, at at the American school. Um, and there were the rich Bangladeshis. Um, yeah, I'm fascinated by the one uh, percent okay. lifestyle in Bangladesh, especially especially Dhaka. I, I feel like um, I feel like there's a you know obviously there's rich people in the U.S. also, but I feel like there's a level of um, I'm gonna ca- I don't know cavalier or just, I feel like there's a there's so much more you can get away with with having money in Bangladesh with that I that yeah. you can that you can't here. I, I feel like you're sort of like you know you sort of basically just you know you have a diplomatic community in Bangladesh if you have money. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, one of my mother's favorite lines is, "In Bangladesh, people treat you according to your status." It's so interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting. I find it fascinating. Not that it doesn't have; it's not here. But you're literally. I think it's just so much more, um, so much more classes there. I'm, I'd love to talk to talk to you about your, your, the the your experience at the camps. I mean, it's so. I mean, you know, I learned a lot about on the panel that you were on, and there's so much despair surrounding you. Um, how do you stay positive? That's such a good question, um, and you know, it's it's a question that is constantly on my mind. Um, I mean, because there is no there's no answer that you don't have to keep renavigating every day, um, especially today because things are vicious. I mean, in the present moment, you know, everything looks so uncertain. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty ahead. Um, and I think about this a lot, you know, with the COVID situation. And it feels like, you know, there are, there are multiple emergencies layered on top of each other. 
Um, we're working in the camps right now. Um, so we have, you know, of course, the refugee court crisis as a, as a political crisis um, that seems to have, you know, no solution in sight. Um, there's COVID. Um, and, you know, as, we, as, as you probably know, South Asia is going through a second wave. Um, Bangladesh has been in, Bangladesh has been in lockdown for, for about a month. Um, and the cases through Bangladesh overall are, are going down. Cases are rising in the camps. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the new variants, the South African variants, the UK variants, and now this, this Indian variant, they seem, um, to spread more easily, um, and, uh, and to be more dangerous. Um, we have the fires, uh, we have the fires, the, the big, there was a big fire in March. There were a lot of little fires leading up to that and after that. Um, and what the fires actually, what that big fire actually did is remind people of their insecurity, um, remind people of, you know, just how unstable, precarious, uh, their present is right now. Um, and yeah, how, there is no, there's no, there's no end in sight. So, is there any sign of improvement? Uh, so, obviously, COVID has changed everything. But prior to COVID, was there any sign of improvement? I know the government was trying to mass migrate uh, a lot of Rohingya into uh, this island, right? Yes, um, and whether you call that improvement, I'm not sure that you would call that improvement. It's certainly, you know, a solution to the overcrowding of the camps in Fox's Bazaar. They are quite overcrowded. And, you know, one of the, one of the issues that people don't talk about, um, one of the issues that I think the international community is actually not aware about, aware about are, you know, safety and security issues. So after 6 p.m., um, the, you know, aid, aid workers are not allowed in camps and it's, and it's a bit of a free for all. The camps are run by gangs, basically criminal elements. Um, there is Bangladeshi, you know, security forces, underground security forces that are present at night from like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. But really, it's very lawless. Um, you, have, you have kidnapping, you have sexual violence, including rapes. Um, there's a lot of, you know, drug-related criminal activity. Um, I've known, I, I personally know you know, many individuals who um, have had family members kidnapped, held for ransom, um, been, you know, arbitrarily detained. Um, been raped or you know sexually harassed um, in other ways, and there's really nothing that we can do about it. Um, so that you know this is Rohingya, you know criminal elements um, and gangs, um, including ARSA, um, of the Rohingya, you know refugee community uh, terrorizing other Rohingya. It's extremely unsafe, um, and so you know one reason that people agree to move to Bashan Chart is to escape all of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, so that piece, I think people are not really aware of. Um, and, you know, for good reason, it's something that, um, we don't really talk about in the Bangladesh government, you know, doesn't really want an awareness of that either. Um, um, because it does, you know, you know, raise question marks about, um, you know, how we are, how we are keeping the Rohingya people safe, um, in Bangladesh, you know, they're under our care, you know, the care of the government of Bangladesh, which has done so much, you know, to, to support them, um, over these last three and a half years, um, almost four years, um, and, and the international aid community. Um, so that situation has actually gotten a lot worse. Um, but, uh, and, you know, moving people to Bashanshar is, is a solution to that. And it's also a solution to the tensions between the host community. And, you know, the Rohingya community, 
Um, so, you know, anywhere you have a significant you know, population of migrants and refugees, you can have tension, right? Mm-hmm. Because, well, because, you know, there is xenophobia, you know, I don't want to discount that. It's very human, you know, we are tribal. Um, but also, you know, the economic impact um, and the social impacts. Yeah, and the environmental impacts too. You know, we should also recognize that there are major environmental impacts, you know, from the felling of, you know, the trees, the you know, destruction of the natural environment, you know, cutting of the hills to make you know, room for this. It's an, I mean, you would say that camps are, you know, an urban environment. They're very densely populated. Um, and the cars, you know, the convoys of cars, like going back and forth from Cox's Bazaar to camps every day. Um, so it's heavy traffic. Roads are destroyed. It's not safe. You know, to cross the road, like kids get into sometimes, you know, get into car accidents while they're you know, walking to school. Um, and, uh, and, and the local people, um, uh, the, the most vulnerable, the poorest, you know, Bangladeshi people in the local communities, they, they have, you know, really found that the livelihoods impacted. Mm. There have been economic benefits to the crisis. Um, you know, there's a lot of money, you know, coming in, um, you know, billion dollars a year, um, just to, you know, support the, the Rohingya, you know, coming in from various sources. You've got, you know, a huge community of aid workers, national and international, you know, living in Cox's Bazaar, spending money on food, on transport, on, on hotels, housing. Um, uh, and, but, you know, who's the, the benefits of that are not equally distributed. Um, and so, you know, of course, as anywhere, you've got, uh, you know, rich getting richer, um, and the poor, um, and the poor are really suffering. So, uh, so the impacts, um, on the host community, like we need to, it needs to be addressed. Um, and, um, and Bashanchar is one solution to that. Um, um, and, uh, you know, another solution is, of course, you know, more economic development, um, of the surrounding area of Cox's Bazaar. Um, but, you know, as long as you have, as long as you have, you know, this population, uh, without opportunity, um, you know, uh, they, they can't, they can't access education. You know, they, they don't have economic opportunities because that's restricted too. Um, they don't have freedom of movement. We've got the fences you know, going up around the camps. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's like living in a ghetto environment. And there's nothing for them to do. They have no future. Um, and, you know, the result of that is it's a sense of hopelessness. What's the, um, uh, what's the ideal, ideal solution in, in your mind? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, I've spoken to some family or fa- extended family members that are, that live in Chittagong and, um, and their, their sentiment is what users describe, I think is, you know, they feel bad for the Rohingya, but, there's plenty of poor people that are not Rohingya in Chittagong, according to them, and 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 so their their question is like, who do they who do they who do they help, right? So, like, what's the ideal solution? Do you think the ideal solution is for that for the Rohingya to go back to Myanmar, or do you think that that ship has sailed and now it's really about what you just said is finding a um, you know a, a better environment in Bangladesh? Well, we've got the ideal solution, you know, an ideal world um, in a perfect set of circumstances. And that, of course, would be for them to go back to, uh, to back to Myanmar, to go back to the homes that they left behind, um, you know, to those homes, to that land, uh, to those villages, 
uh, which may not exist anymore because yeah. they've been destroyed, yep. they've been raised over, you know, they've been economically developed for other purposes. Um, but in order for that ideal solution to happen, um, you know, a couple of uh, circumstances need to be in place. You know, one is safety, of course. You have, um, and you have all the violence now um, after the military coup in, in, in February, right? So it's, um, you know, uh, so it's not just the, the minority ethnic groups that are in danger. Um, uh, you know, you've got nuclear violence throughout Myanmar. Um, but even previous to that, you know, you had the, um, uh, the Rakhines, you know, that, the Arakanese minority ethnic group in Rakhine with whom, um, uh, the Rohingya people also, you know, have tension, um, uh, you know, leading their own, um, fight against, uh, uh, the Burmese military. Um, so it's just, it's not safe, you know, it's not physically safe for them to go back. And then they're not going to go back without the rights and citizenships. Um, as, you know, we've discussed before, you know, they, they, are not one of the groups that is granted citizenship um, um, in the current, um, you know, uh, in the you know Myanmar, you know, uh, constitution um, in the nineteen you know eighty two citizenship amendment as it stands right now. So you know there has to be, I mean, the parliament would have to sit and you know change that amendment um, to allow the Rohingya people to have citizenship. If they don't have citizenship, they're not protected. You know, they have to. They then. Um, they don't have freedom of movement there either. You know, they, they can't go to university. They're not able to, you know, access, uh, a lot of professional opportunities. They can be like abused and discriminated against in so many ways. Why would you want that? Um, so, you know, without that, uh, you know, without a legal framework in place, as well as, you know, the safety for them to go back, um, it's how can you see that happening? It's, you know, what, you know, the violence that has been, um, um, you know, uh, visited upon them, you know, so many times repetitive, you know, like as pogroms, um, um, over the past decade, it's just going to happen again and again and again. So it's not, you know, a durable solution unless they have rights and citizenship. How do you, and so the conversation, I mean, the conversation that I hear, you know, um, in Cox's Bazaar with my friends and family, you know, when I go to the RRC's office, um, you know, from other Bangladesh, she says, what is the international community doing? What is the UN doing to force Myanmar to take them back? Um, well, you know, how do you, how do you force Myanmar? I mean, how do you force a sovereign country? You know, how do you force a parliament, like, to change their citizenship laws? I mean, can you see, like, the UN, you know, forcing Bangladesh to, you know, change, to, to change our citizenship laws, you know, to give, to give, you know, rights and citizenship to, to group of people that we don't recognize as Bangladesh. Can you see that happening? You know, like we don't want to record, you know, rep- we don't want to recognize Adivashi, you know, as, yeah. as long you know, as, as, as Adivashi, as an indigenous group, you know, how does, how does the external pressure work? Um, I think people are willfully naive about, you know, the role that the, that the international community and especially the UN can play here. Um, you know, in, in terms of the UN, you know, the Security Council, you've got, you know, India, you've got Russia. They're playing like a global, you know, chess game, um, against, um, you know, the U.S. and, and, uh, and, you know, the Western powers. And what's happening in, in, uh, and what's happening in Myanmar is just like a proxy, right? So, yeah. you know, they, they're going to block any security resolution. China's going to block any security resolution. Russia's going to block any security resolution just 
to block, you know, American influence. And the poor Rohingya, the poor stateless Rohingya, they just become, you know, collateral damage. Um, so in terms of an ideal solution, yes, ideally, in the ideal set of circumstances, they would get to go back to their homeland and they would be allowed, you know, they would be given the rights and the opportunities to be able to, um, you know, better their lives. The, the Rohingya people, they have been systematically discriminated against and deprived for generations. The literacy rate is extremely low. Uh, you know, most of them, um, most of them, you know, are, are farmers. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, it's, it's very kind of, it's very conservative society. It is what, you know, Bangladesh used to be, um, and pockets of Bangladesh still are you know, about 50 years ago. Um, but, you know, Bangladesh has had the opportunity of so much development um, through, you know, government policies, as well as, you know, the interventions of organizations like BRAC, you know, so many great local national NGOs working here, as well as, um, you know, international, international support, um, international development support. So we've made so many gains, right? Um, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, coming up from lower income to, you know, middle income status in terms of gender equality. Um, I, uh, so in Bangladesh, so Bangladesh, you know, has the greatest gender equality of all of the countries of South Asia. That's pretty cool, right? You know, we definitely don't see that in the Rohingya population. It wasn't true like 50 years ago. You know, my grandmother, you know, just like a, a, a Rohingya grandmother, she was married when she was 11 or 12 years old. She never learned to read and write. You know, she, she could read and write her, her Arabic and you know, would pray all the time. Um, but, uh, my, my mother, you know, me and my sisters are, are worlds away, you know, in terms of the opportunities that we've been given, uh, in terms of our role, you know, in Bangladeshi society. Um, and, you know, that has, that is the result of, you know, sustained, you know, deliberate, systematic development. Um, Rohingyas have not, Rohingya have not benefited from that. And in order for them, you know, to really, um, you know, make, make those strides, they have to, they have to, you know, have access to those opportunities. They're not going to get that. And it's not just the Rohingya who are not getting that in, in Myanmar. I mean, Myanmar is, is a poorer country than Bangladesh um, and much more, you know, and, and, now, and now they have a lot of political um, infighting, exactly. right? Yeah. A question yeah. about this, this just occurred to me is, um, and this is an, I'm, I'm, I'm just not aware what's the is there a rohingya diaspora community so i'm just question i'm asking whether there's rohingya dispersed all throughout the world that and and do they have uh, a role in um you know helping yes for sure there is a huge rohingya diaspora um so uh so there's a, a big population in pakistan um mm. there is a big population in saudi arabia in the uae in malaysia um, Malaysia. Are, yeah, Malaysia yeah. is a lot. Uh, that's actually where I, I was watching a documentary about some of the kidnappings that you were talking about, and a lot of that is, um, I'm sorry, Thailand. A lot of the kidnappings are happening where uh, Thai, Thai um, uh, kidnappers are kidnapping Rohingya. Correct? I, I'm not. I'm not really aware of that. Um, okay. Kidnapping them to hold them for ransom. Yep. Mm. Well, um, there's a lot of people smuggling, uh, mm. and yes, yeah, so, so there's a lot of people smuggling, 
And um, that's those people with smugglers, they include Thai people, mm. Malaysian people, as well as Rohingya people. Okay. Um, there, are, there are, yeah, there, there's a diaspora in, in Thailand. Um, I think many of them are, are refugees. Mm. Um, and so, you know, when you have Rohingya people who are resettled into, into Australia or Canada or, you know, the UK, um, Western countries, they usually come from refugee camps in Thailand or Malaysia or mm. Indonesia. Um, Bangladesh currently is not resettling, uh, Rohingya people from, um, from Bangladesh to third countries. Mm. Um, previously, uh, I think previous to 2010, Bangladesh would allow that, but they stopped allowing that because they thought it would be, it was a decision that an assessment that it would be a pull factor. So as a Rohingya person, you knew that you could come to Bangladesh from Myanmar and then have an opportunity to then go to the U.S. um, And that would become a pull factor. Obviously, that's that that reasoning, you know, it doesn't really make sense anymore because most of them are here anyway. And what they're fleeing is is violence. Um, um, so yes, there there, there were populations in, in in the U.S. Um, you know, scattered through scattered through different cities. Um, not so much in not so much in New York. Um, uh, you've got Texas, uh, you've got Georgia, um, Chicago, I think Indiana, uh, Indiana. I can't remember the, the name of the city in Indiana. Um, so there 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 are smaller pockets, and they're more and and those are more recent migrants. But you have, you have large diaspora populations in Pakistan, um, and across the Middle East. And this is an interesting fact. Um, so, you know, based on, based on my research in the community, the Rohingya people, they've actually become more conservative, more religiously conservative over time, um, over the last couple of generations because of these diaspora populations, because of migrants who have gone to, you know, conservative Muslim countries. You know, uh, countries that, you know, practice like Wahhabi ideology and then they come back, um, then they come back, you know, to Rakhine, um, uh, you know, bringing that, bringing those conservative ideas, um, about women's roles, for example, with, um, you know, and funding, you know, dresses and, and mosques, you know, among salaries. So it's, you know, the same story among the Rohingya that it actually has been in Bangladesh, you know, with a rising kind of conservatism. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's really, really interesting because, you know, I had just assumed that, you know, there were always, there were always this conservative, you know, they always, they had always, like, you know, practiced this very strict, um, uh, you know, segregation of you know, gender. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people, people that I, that I talked to in the community, um, say that, no, that that's not actually true. That's not actually true. You know, they've become more conservative. Um, and it is because of this influence. Um, it's so much easier to prey on those that have little, right? And just promise them things. And I guess the afterlife, if you do X, Y, Z. Well, that's that gets back to you know your question about um, about staying positive, right? Um, I mean, we there has been a lot of research that that you know spirituality, like believing in something larger than yourself, spiritual beliefs are they are protective. Um, they do. There, there's a correlation between, you know, spiritual beliefs and, and resilience. Um, and I see that a lot. I, I definitely see that a lot in the Rohingya community. They are quite, quite religious. Um, and this month, you know, Ramadan, it's, it's very important to them. Um, and, uh, um, so they are religious. They don't lose their faith. They don't lose their faith. Um, 
And, you know, it's heartbreaking for them to tell me, we're just unlucky. You know, we are unlucky. This is, you know, this is what is in our fate. Um, but that kind of acceptance of their fate, that there's something, yeah, there is something better ahead of them. I think it helps to allow them to just focus on, um, focus on the day to day and, um, and really to, so I would say that one of the, one of the remarkable things about um, the Rohingya community is that is their close bonds, you know, that they have with each other. They're very, they're very, very strong families, large families. They believe in, ha- in having a lot of children, you know, but it is, Allah wants you to have a lot of children. Children come from Allah, you know, don't practice birth control. Um, sure. So, so have a lot of children. Allah will, t- Allah sends them, Allah will take care of them. Um, and they take a lot of joy in their children, in their large families, you know, even if they're poor. Children are joy. Family members are it's joy. It's also insurance, right? It's, it's life. It's insurance. We. It's. It's who's going to take care of you when you're older. It is insurance, but it also is like you know the only kind of stable architecture of their lives. You know, nothing mm. is permanent. There's so little that's permanent. Um, but you know, there is your family. You know, there there's bonds that you have. Yes, your children will take care of you, but you know also. You know, people in your community, your extended, you know, family members, your bushti, people from your village. Um, and there is in, in those community bonds, you know, this idea that if you are a person with wealth and education in the community, it is part of, you know, your duty, your obligation to take care of people who have less. Like that is still present. You know, it's still a very like communitarian society, you know, not, not individualistic. Bangladesh is, Bangladesh is becoming more individualistic, but, but the Rohingya, they're still very, very, you know, communitarian. And, you know, their bonds with each other, you know, the love that they have, you know, for their family members, for their community. Um, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And it is what creates meaning and a purpose, um, uh, in their lives. Um, and so they really prioritize that and they take comfort and strength from, from that. Um, and they don't want to be separated. And that's one of the reasons mm. that they really resist um, um, being separated. For example, some family members being going to being taken to Bashan Shar or other family members, you know, being resettled from the camps that they're in because there are, you know, issues with um, uh, this, this landscape isn't safe. You know, there might be water logging or you know, danger if cyclones come that their houses might get destroyed. So they really, really want to stay together. Um, and yeah, I would say that that is those community bonds, the family bonds, you know, that, that love, that love, um, is probably like the key protective factor. And I like witnessing that, you know, it also, it changes my mindset, you know, a little bit. Um, and, um, you know, it, like if they can, you know, manage to create a sense of you know normalcy, um, you know, find belief, you know, find goodness, find joy, you know, despite the harsh circumstances and the uncertainty in their future. Um, you know, why can't I? Right. So it yeah. is inspiring at that level and um and very humbling. Very, very humbling. Do you see yourself um staying in the camps in, in, in the long run and also I think you had, from what I read, you had plans on writing a book. Are you still continuing that? Yes, 
Yes, absolutely. Um, so, um, as I said, I'm a, I'm an accidental humanitarian. Um, didn't mean to make this clear choice. It just seemed to have chosen me. And then for the first couple of years, um, it was very hard because of the moral injury, I guess I would say, um, of like witnessing, you know, so much, so much suffering, so much injustice, and then struggling to make sense out of, you know, the world, a world in which people can um, be so be so deprived, you know, uh, suffer so much um, that through no fault of their own, um, trying to make sense of that. Um, and then also, you know, trying to deal with the harsh circumstances and causes are. And when I say that, you know, I, I'm not talking about you know, the quality of life, though. It, you know, it's certainly not New York City. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, like learning to accept um, that there is so much injustice and suffering in the world, but, you know, not to make that the measure of my attention. Um, and to find um, ways in which I could do work that is important, you know, that is meaningful to me that is a fit to my skills and experiences and you know find joy and purpose in that i can't solve all of the problems i can't solve the range of crisis you know i it's the scale of it is is too huge for you know one person one agency you know one one country it has to be like a global solution um a lot of stakeholders working together to create a solution to that um but there are you know small things that i can do um that um you know are suited to, to my skills um and and those things also make a difference um they make a difference and as we as you as you mentioned before yeah, I, I see the impact and i take a lot of joy in my relationships um my relationships with the community you know working in the camps for as long as i have you know i now have um you know, people that i've known for years um and you know they know that i'm going to be there you know they they so the women for example that i work with in the embroidery projects they know that you know they will see me you know week after week even if they don't see me for a month or two at a time i'll be back and now you know we have these really like hilarious relationships where they tease me um about being unmarried you know and like mm -hmm. you know ask me about you know like dating and romantic life and like give me advice and and we're hanging women you know contrary to the way that we often you know portray like conservative or you know, conservative muslim women who are veiled they are hilarious you know <laughs> they um they can have quite dirty minds <laughs> 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 they love to joke and to gossip and to have fun uh they love to make fun of me um so i yeah i love going to camp and spending time with them and just you know those relationships that i have in the community with my team. I have a very, very special team. Um, my project is extremely special. I feel like I have somehow lucked into the best job in Cox's Bazaar, um, working at the Rohingya Cultural Memory Center. Um, and, and also, you know, Cox's Bazaar, Cox's Bazaar is a little bit like New York City in the sense that the people that you meet there. Okay. So, so I should say, so I, I, I should uh, be more specific there. So the, the humanitarian, you know, aid world in Cox's Bazaar is a little bit like New York City mm. in the sense that it attracts people who are very intense and very gifted and really have this, you know, longing to find meaning, um, find meaning to do things that are meaningful and purposeful. And so the people that I have met in Cox's um, uh, over these last few years, they have become 
some of my best friends, you know, they have changed the way that I look at the world. Um, they are a part of me. Um, and they come from all over the world. You know, I, I have friends from, um, I have friends, you know, who are part of my, my, my circle there, um, who come from, you know, countries across Africa, Europe, Australia, you know, the, the U.S. Um, and, you know, every year there's a turnover and every year, you know, I lose people, but they become part of my, you know, extended, um, you know, constellation of friends, you know, spread out, um, spread globally. And then new people come in. Um, and I, you know, just meet these, these beautiful, you know, intense, magical, like gifted individuals, um, who, you know, even though they don't stay, um, they, you know, continue to be a part of my life, um, and, you know, to have an impact on me. So that is, it, it, that is one of the, um, aspects of Cox's Bazaar, you know, that I, I cherish the most. It's also a little bit bittersweet because people come and go, um, mm. you know, they might be there for three months, six months, maybe a year. Sometimes they come back. Um, they come into, you know, your life and you have this like extremely intense experience because you're in the trenches together, together doing this work that is super intense, super hard, super meaningful. Um, and, you know, and incredibly, um, tragic things happen, you know, during that time. Um, um, and so like the bonds that you forge, um, are, are very, very deep. They're very deep and they're very durable. Um, and so, you know, the people, yeah, the people are a big reason that I stay. The people in the, in the, um, in the Rohingya community, as well as you know, the people that I work alongside with. And it's the people I have met and I'm yet to meet. Um, and so you asked about my book. Um, the book that I want to write, you know, would be to tell the story of the, of the crisis, um, from the perspective of, the people who are part of it. Uh, so, um, you know, the voices, so the voices of uh, the refugees, um, as well as, you know, my voice, the voices of, you know, those of us, um, you know, working on behalf of, working on behalf of the refugees. Um, you know, such, such powerful stories. Um, and I think there is a real, you know, curiosity and a lack of awareness about, um, you know, the inside of, a refugee response or a disaster response. There aren't a lot of books. Um, there are, there isn't a lot of literature, um, you know, or film, um, about this particular world. And it's a, it's a funny, you know, particular world. Um, you know, there is the famous, you know, book about the uh, Rwandan genocide. Um, I wish to inform you tomorrow that we will be, you know, that tomorrow we will be killed with our families, but that's really about the genocide. It's not about, it's not the, it's not about the response. Um, and initially, I had thought, you know, that I would write a book, you know, like that, um, centered on the 2017 influx and, 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 you know, um, all, all of the factors, you know, the root factors, um, and how everything played out. Um, but, you know, over these last four years, my, uh, my view of it has changed. And, you know, I've had so many experiences and we've been at the center of it. Um, and so I think I have an opportunity to, you know, to tell that story, maybe not in, in a responsibility, you know, to, to tell that story in a way that, um, you know, hasn't, isn't being told. Um, one book, uh, one book that kind of, um, exposes, you know, how the sausage is made, 
how the humanitarian, you know, response sausage is made is called emergency sex, which is about, uh, you know, four, it's, it's co-authored by, by, uh, four aid workers, um, um, who have spent time in, in various, you know, disaster responses. And it was very controversial. It was very controversial because it kind of blew the lid on, um, on some of the more, um, seedy aspects um, of this work and all the politics. You know, there's a lot of politics. I thought, you know, going in that everybody was a tree hugger, right? Everybody's an mm. idealist, you know, um, uh, you know, just do-gooders, um, you know, standing and handing, standing and handing out, um, you know, food packages to, to lines of refugees. And it's all, and it's all very, um, heartfelt and um you know everybody is working toward a single purpose and that is you know just to, to help the, to help refugees the survivors of the disaster but you know it turns out that, um it's a profession it is a mm. profession there's a lot of competition you know there's mm. um a lot of incompetency um there is corruption um there is politics there's a lot of like office politics <laughs> and let me tell you Bangladeshi offices are the most political offices, you know, there's, there's just so much like backstabbing it's, and inviting and power play. It's, it's incredible. Um, see that. So, yeah. So there's a, that aspect of it too. Um, and yeah, and just the whole gamut of experiences. There's, there's lots of, there's lots of power. Well, I, uh, I, I mean, it's fascinating hearing you, uh, speak, but also it's, uh, I'm a little bit envious because it's so, um, uh, what's the word is just enthusiastic about what, what you're saying. And even though it's, uh, you know, you're dealing with such, um, despair on the ground, but it, you, you're, you're just so, uh, passionate about what you're working on. And I, I feel like, like, I'm certainly for me and I know some other people that, are, you know, work in professions that really, you know, like I said earlier, you don't see the immediate impact or even the impact really isn't, you know, isn't, uh, you know, any, anything close to what you're doing. I'm definitely envious. So I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. Um, well, come to Bangladesh. That's what I would say to the, to the Bengalis of New York audience. Come to Bangladesh. There are opportunities for you. And it's not the Bangladesh, you know, that your parents remember. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, Dhaka is a megapolis. Um, definitely there's traffic and, you know, all of the, all of the downsides of being a huge urban environment, but you know, there's so there's, much happening. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I, I feel like, um, one of the things we've been trying to do is raise awareness around it. Yesterday we had, I had someone from the, it's an organization called Teach for Bangladesh. Um, and they're desperately looking for people, um, to teach in Bangladesh. Um, and it's a great fellowship pays decent. Um, and I'm surprised I didn't know about it and I wish I was, if I was younger, I would have definitely, um, applied for it. Uh, and I was looking for things like that when I was younger, I just didn't know they existed. And, uh, but I would love, yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to, to, you know, go back and yeah, I mean, I think what your dad did was, is wonderful. Like I said, I don't really hear too much about, about that. And, and I honestly think the way the numbers are looking, I mean, even just, even with the crisis, uh, the Rohingya crisis, Bangladesh seems to be primed to, you know, be a, um, you know, middle of the road developing nation in 50 years. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. 
um, really for my vacation. Like, I mean, Cox Bazaar, I know it's beautiful. I haven't been there, but um, I know it's a vacation spot already, but I could see people going, you know, flocking there, you know, from even, even this part of the world. They develop Cox's Bazaar in the right way. Yeah. Um, mm. It could be that there's so much natural beauty there. Uh, the sunsets in Cox's Bazaar mm. that drive, you know, that drive down Marine Drive um, where you, it's just, and well, you know, the thing that they say about Cox's Bazaar, it's, it's the longest stretch of coastal beach yeah, in the yeah. world. Um, and it is so beautiful. You know, that vista. When I'm coming back from camp, um, after you know a long hot day um and you know often some emotional experiences it's so healing you know to look out at that water at the bay of bengal mm. you know the, the trees the strip of sand the surf there's a surfing community in boxes bizarre that's a, yeah. that a lot of people don't know yeah and the gorgeous sunsets and then you stop at the mermaid i mean i'm you know if you're if you're lucky enough to have the means you need know, to stop at the mermaid you know this this beautiful um resort um uh, on the way back to Cox's Bazaar and and have a, a, mint, a frozen mint lemonade you know as, as the sun mm. goes down and yeah there are some that sounds awesome yeah you know what happens though i think what happens with folks that visit bangladesh and you know that's the case with me is that when you go it's just the three weeks let's say you know you have off you're, you spend all the time visiting family. You don't really have the opportunity to do anything else. And I think that's actually something that me and my friends talk about is uh, I would love the opportunity to go with our friends. And my wife talk about, we, we say that, you know, next time we go, maybe we won't even tell anyone and just go straight to Cox Bazaar so that we, you know, it's, we're not obligated to go to people's houses the entire time. Um, I will host you. <laughs> Come stay with me. Yeah, exactly. That, My door is open. I appreciate yeah, it. Well, it was a great conversation. Um, like I said, I'd love to have you back. I appreciate it. And um, uh, yeah, I really love the work uh, you're doing. And I love the work that you're doing. I love these podcasts. And um, I'm honored to be to be asked on um, along with you know all of the other great guests that you have interviewed. Thank you. The red and green I beat is always in my heart. I do it for my people, always in my thoughts. I gotta be honest, with diamonds and pearls, yeah, yeah. Bengal is a New York, all over the world, uh, it's the bony show. Uh, hey, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From the slang we spit, to the gangs we with. It doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh. I say, hey, come on, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live.